Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. All right. Today we have Brian Davis with us. He is co-founder of Spark Rental. Brian, thanks so much for coming on our show. Just kind of wanted to start out. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got started in real estate? Sure. Well, AJ, Chris, thank you guys so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to being here. And God, how I got into real estate. So that was 20 years ago at this point. I fell into real estate totally by accident. Graduated college, had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, like so many young people. And I fell into a job working at a subprime mortgage lender, which was all the rage in 2003, if you guys remember. So I did an internship there for a summer. And at the end of the summer, the two owners of the company asked me if I wanted to stay on, but they said, we don't need another loan officer. What we really need is someone to help us with our hard money lending because the two owners as a side hustler, as a side business, lent hard money loans to local real estate investors. They had a nationwide subprime mortgage lending company. But so I said, sure. I mean, you know, I didn't know anything about real estate investing or really lending money at that point, but I said, sure. And started working with investors day in, day out, doing hard money loans, you know, short-term purchase rehab, flip kind of loans or Burr method kind of loans. And I watched all these guys make money hand over fists. You know, it's a big real estate party in the mid aughts, right? (laughs) Everybody's making money. You guys know where that story ends. It's not exactly a plot twist. I went in with all in, basically. I took all of my savings and I invested it in rental properties with no clue what I was doing. I mean, just totally in over my head. Did not get the help I should have gotten. And 2008 hit. We're one of those guys with the stories. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost depressing telling these stories after the fact because everyone knows how they end, right? I mean, it's, it's a depressing story. But I learned a ton. And when 2008 hit, it was actually, it was a double whammy for me because not only did my investments totally tank and I learned just how badly I had been doing by investing in these properties, but my day job also disappeared because no one was borrowing hard money loans anymore either. (laughs) That was a mess in itself. But I ended up taking a job with an e-commerce company that services landlords and mom and pop real estate investors. And the whole reason I got that job was because I was a landlord and a mom and pop real estate investor. Every dark storm cloud has its silver lining. And for your education. Yeah. And I kept investing in real estate, of course, after that. I realized that the money that I had lost, either it could be a true loss or it could simply be the cost of education, right? It could be tuition effectively. That's how I treated it. And yeah, going and working for another company, learning internet marketing and the whole e-commerce and SaaS industries. They opened up a new chapter in my life. And in 2016, I co-founded Spark Rental with a former colleague of mine, Denny Supley. And that in itself has been a wandering journey. And you know, it's been filled with lots of ups and downs and unexpected turns. But I already probably gave you a longer answer than you were looking for. So <laughs> I'll pause there. I mean, we're very interested to hear the story of Spark Rental and the building blocks of how it got started. 
we have heard the story of buying a bunch of rental properties, watching money just compound and then losing it all in 2008. AJ and I started investing in 2006 and I bought my first property with poker winnings. Um, <laughs> I love it. And obviously I couldn't get a loan, so I had to buy it in cash. And I literally just sold that property about 18 months ago for the same amount that I bought it for. Right. <laughs> That's depressing. <laughs> but hey, you know what? At least you broke even minus it's, inflation. It's tuition. You probably got some rent throughout the, the period too. So I mean, that breaking yeah, even is yeah. kind of, you know, not so bad. Yeah, absolutely. And got some tax write-offs. And Spark Rental, when my partner and I first co-founded the company, our vision was to create a landlord software platform, a property management software for mom and pop landlords. Because at the time, there wasn't really a perfect solution out there for them. There were some really good property management softwares for larger corporate landlords and larger property management companies, but there weren't really any good ones for small landlords. But the problem is that neither neither my partner nor I are really technical people. And it's hard to start a software business if you don't have at least one technical founder. We hired a software development company to build out this software for us. And they got halfway through the projects, took a bunch of our money, and then said, nah, this is more work than we thought it was going to be. So we're just not going to finish this project. And we said, all right, well, give us our money back then. And they're like, no, no, we're going to keep that for our trouble. But they had taken a huge amount of our seed capital. So Denny and I oh <laughs> we went back to the drawing board and ended up becoming more of an education first company, first a blog and a podcast. And we launched some courses teaching real estate investing. We did eventually launch a property management software as well. But <laughs> it took a lot of those turns that you take on an entrepreneurial journey. And one lesson that has come back again and again for us is that the business that you think you're in is not necessarily the business that the market thinks that you're in or the things that you should be in. It's not necessarily the business that your customers and would-be customers think that you should be in. I'll give you an example. Obviously, there was the software. <laughs> but we selling this course on real estate investing and our students and the rest of our audience who had not purchased anything yet, they kept asking over and over again, can we just invest with you guys in some of the projects that you're investing? And at that point, I was living overseas. I moved overseas in 2015. And my partner was living outside of Philadelphia and didn't want to invest in her area either. So we kept saying no to people. We kept saying no, because neither one of us is really doing a lot of active investing right now. And finally, after the 157th person you know, asked us, can we invest with you guys in some of your projects? We finally looked at each other and said, all right, well, what would it take to say yes to these people who keep asking the same question? We partnered with a local boots on the ground investor up in Michigan. And we did a couple, what we called co-investing deals with him, where our audience members just went in on these deals with us and with him. And we did a flip and we did a rental property and the returns were good. They were fine, but it was a lot more work <laughs> than we were expecting. We were like, ah, we're getting an enthusiastic response from people. People like this, but it's too much work for us. How can we make this work? You said you had experience with hard money lending. Like, Was yeah. the investment like a hard money loan or was it more in the equity side? Kind of like expand a little bit on what that first looked like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, so it was not a hard money loan. We bought a property in cash, financed by just everyone contributing a certain percentage of the money to the property and having 
that percentage ownership interest in it. My background on the hard money side, yeah. So from 2003 to 2008, I was an account executive for a hard money lender. And I have not been back in the space since. I have lent some private notes in the space since, and I have passively invested a significant amount of money in hard money loans since, but not in the day-to-day operations of a hard money lending business since 2008. All right, so it was a lot of work to wrangle all the cats. So Exactly. It was absolutely (laughs) wrangling cats. And it was around this time that I had discovered passive real estate investing in syndications. And a lot of people are not that familiar with the term real estate syndication. They hear terms like private equity real estate investment, and their eyes kind of glaze over or they get intimidated. But these are actually way simpler investments than going out and actively buying properties. If only people knew how much easier it is to invest passively in private equity real estate than it is to go out and buy rental properties or flip houses. I had just gotten into this at this point. These are basically group investments for anyone who doesn't know. And I went to Denny, my partner, and I said, look, what if we tried doing a passive real estate deal as a pilot deal for our co-investing club, for this investment club that we've been kind of playing around with? And she said, well, I don't know much about that, but I'm open to it. So sure. So we did one. We got a nice response from our audience and we decided to launch an entire investment club around it. Every month, we vet at least one new passive real estate investing deal. And whoever wants to invest in it can do so with a relatively small amount. In our case, $5,000 is the minimum per person, which might not sound trivial and it's not trivial, but it's a lot less than the typical 50 grand, 100 grand, in some cases, 500 grand or a million dollars that you need to invest in private equity real estate syndications. Our co-investing club was born and that has been our main focus ever since. It's been a lot of fun. We get all the benefits of real estate investing and owning properties without actually having to be landlords or manage assets, manage properties, manage tenants or property managers or any of those headaches. You don't have to deal with city inspectors anymore or pulling permits. Thank <laughs> God. The number of horror stories I could tell you from Baltimore City and from contractors to permit inspectors, I don't miss any of that. Now we just invest passively and every month we vet a deal or two and dollar cost average our real estate investments basically. Beauty. One thing that really rang true for me was when you said that when you start a business, that might not be exactly what the market wants or needs. AJ and I, we had an idea to open up a bottle shop, like a little beer store to sell to-go beer. Because in my college town, there was this place where you could get nice Belgian beers. And I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what we need to do. And fast forward, now we have a beer bar. Hold on, hold on, Chris. We really started out as bottle shop homebrew supplies and then kind of a little tiny bit of a a tap house. But on day one, our city liquor inspector came in and he's like, you guys need to sell draft beer here. Like people want to come in and drink beer. We're like, wait, what? We can do that? <laughs> and so it's not where I thought that story was going. <laughs> I thought he was going to come in and shut you down. Um, yeah, it's just so funny how, like, you think you have this amazing idea and you're so gung ho about it. And 10 years later, you still have a great, amazing business that adds a ton of value to your life, but it's not what you thought it was. And I guess 
the moral of the story is that like getting started in learning what the market wants is more important than coming up with the perfect plan. No question. I want to add to that too, is like what comes first, the chicken or the egg in that situation? Like we didn't have any idea on how to survey our potential customers because we didn't know who our customers were going to be. In some aspects, you got to start somewhere and move forward and then just be open to change and listen to what is it the customers really want. There's so many similarities with the story of Spark Rental and just the process of starting a business. So yeah, no question. You know, there's a podcaster that I like named James Wedmore who has a podcast called Mind Your Business Podcast. And one of the things he talks about is how action informs and creates future actions, right? It breeds decisiveness. You can sit around, you can wring your hands and you can do all the analysis paralysis, but until you start taking action, until you get out there and just get in the weeds and start interacting with potential customers, you just don't know. Take action. That will then reinforce those future actions and give you the information that you need to make better future decisions and better future actions. Both you and I had to pay tuition on our first real estate deals. And some people pay less tuition, some people pay more, but paid a lot. (laughs) In in the end, mistakes will be made and they're unavoidable. I don't think there's a way to do real estate or business without making some significant mistakes. And it's just part of the deal. I think there is a lot to the expression of failing forward, but that comes back to taking action. Yeah, you're going to make mistakes. But ideally, you learn from those mistakes quicker rather than later. And you go back and you keep reiterating. So you guys started doing syndications in 2018 or 2019? No, no. More recently than that. We, the investment club started three or four years ago. We really made that switch to passive real estate investing in 2022. But I want to just clarify that we are not actual syndicators ourselves. So we're not raising money. We're not raising capital. We're not selling securities. Our only form of income with our club is a flat membership fee that we charge our members. We don't get a cut of any of the money that is invested in these syndication deals because otherwise we would be selling securities and the SEC would come knocking on our door and would have bad things to say to us. (laughs) So no, it's just a straight investment club that we operate on a flat membership fee. Cool. I'm kind of curious about that. Do you negotiate with the syndicator up front? Uh, we're going to have people come in with less than the $50,000 buy-in. Like, Is it like you just create a partnership and then that partnership and everybody has the exact same equity? Or I guess I'm kind of curious how that actually works. Yeah. So we create a new LLC for each deal and the LLC then invests in the syndication. So the LLC signs the PPM and invests with 100 grand, 200 grand, 400 grand, whatever the total amount our club invests. And then whoever wants to invest in that deal, they become a partial owner in the LLC. It's almost like a fraction of a fraction investing in real estate. Kind of a fund of fund. Right. We can't actually call it that because that would be selling securities. (laughs) In a fund of funds, you're taking a piece of the action yourself, which we are not. That's the distinction. Tell us a little bit more about the community. and. I mean, you guys started out in education. Are you still doing education? Do you guys meet monthly? Yeah. So we take education very seriously as one of our core values. I mean, we have 400 and some 
articles in our blog library. We do a weekly podcast. We have a real estate investing course. We do free webinars all the time. We do Facebook challenges. And yeah, the education piece is huge. Within our club, we have started bringing in outside speakers to do free presentations to our club members about niche subjects. So for example, in late 2023, we had a specialist with mobile home park investing come in and talked about why they invest in mobile homes and what are the advantages of mobile home parks as opposed to other types of commercial real estate investments. And then we did end up investing in a deal that that sponsor brought to us later on. It was a portfolio for mobile home parks. But yes, it all ties together. I mean, the education piece, the investing piece, and the community piece of our club, we get together at least once a month to vet these deals and hopefully several times a month to have presentations and educational experiences. And it is truly vetting by community. So I'll give you a quick example. There was a deal in Dallas, Texas that we were evaluating. And after the sponsor got off the call, we had our Q&A with him. And after he left, one of our community members raised her hand and said, hey, I live literally five minutes down the road from this apartment building. I drive past it every day in my commute. And I can tell you firsthand about this neighborhood and about the area. And she said, there is more demand for professional housing in this area, which there's apartment complex was offering. And she said, it's a thriving area. There's a lot more demand than there is supply. It's a great building, but it's outdated and needs some work, which is exactly what they're planning on doing to it. So she said, this is a good deal. That's great because I've never been to Dallas. I couldn't tell you what the housing market in Dallas is like, at least not from any kind of firsthand perspective. I mean, I might be able to quote you a number or two, but that's not the same as living five minutes down the street from this building and driving past it every day. It's that kind of thing that makes a community of investors valuable. And I could tell you a hundred stories like that. We had an insurance adjuster coming in and saying, well, that sponsor, you know, I think is really underestimating the cost growth in for insurance premiums over the next couple of years and things like that. Yeah. That community aspect to our investment club is crucial to how we make decisions as a club and how we vet deals. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. Do you guys ever meet up in person? We haven't, partially because I live overseas. It makes it harder. We do spend a month or two in the US every year. But that time is pretty hectic and running around and trying to squeeze a year's worth of spending time with friends and family into six weeks or so. But yeah, I spent four years living in Abu Dhabi. We spent four years living in Brazil and we just moved to Peru about six months ago. It's hard to do in-person events. I would really like to get to one or two conferences, you know, other people's conferences in 2024, but we'll just have to see. 
It's a long flight from Peru. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's not trivial to travel from another continent. A lot of what I've heard, and I think Chris and I both have read uh, Brian Burke's The Hands-Off Investor. And a lot of that, what it is, is not necessarily vetting just the deal, but vetting the sponsor. Maybe can you describe to us how you guys go about vetting sponsors? Absolutely. First of all, we try to find sponsors through other sponsors as our main way of finding new sponsors to potentially invest with. Every time we speak with a sponsor, we will ask as our last question, who else do you like and respect in this space? Who would you invest your own money with as an LP, as a limited partner, passive investor in their deals? And what higher praise can you get than from your peers, right? The other people who are doing exactly that. So that's how we try to find all of our sponsors in the first place. But we have an initial call with them, of course. We ask them how long they've been doing this. What's your investment thesis? And what markets do you invest in and why? And all the kind of typical stuff. One of the things that is important to me to try to drill into with a sponsor is getting a sense for how they mitigate risk and what risks they see in this current market and looking forward over the next couple of years. Because you know, if you look, if we were on the clock to 2022, early 2023, you know, a lot of people, and before really, people weren't paying nearly as much attention as they should have to interest rate risk, right? Before 2022, no one was paying any attention at all to it. So people were getting these <laughs> two, three-year loans with floating interest rates with no cap, thinking that it's just going to be a big party forever. And then in 2022 and 2023, people were paying attention to it, but still probably weren't taking it as seriously as they should have. So people, yeah, they started buying interest rate caps, but a lot of sponsors were still getting those two or three-year bridge loans. Then it became clear at a certain point last year that interest rates might stay elevated for a while. I mean, my crystal ball is no clearer than anyone else's, but you don't want to be forced into either selling or refinancing in just one, two, three years from now, because the market may not be favorable then for either refinancing or selling. How people approach that is important. I want to know what sponsors think of as the risks that no one is talking about enough now. What are the risks that in a year or two from now, we're going to be saying, oh, you know, a year or two ago, we should have been taking this more seriously the same way that right now we're talking about, oh, everyone should have been taking interest rates more seriously a couple of years ago. One of those that we started tapping into before a lot of people in 2023, and by the end of 2023, everyone was talking about this, was insurance premium risk and how it was just going through the roof for everybody, for homeowners, for investors, for commercial owners. But people weren't really talking about that until the second half of 2023 and really the fourth quarter of 2023. That was something that we started hearing noises about in May, June of 2023 and started drilling into with sponsors as we met with them for the first time say you know how are you protecting against your insurance premiums doubling over the next year or tripling over the next couple of years things like that we want to know what risks do they see how are they mitigating them what exit strategies are you putting in place so you have all of these different contingency plans in case xyz goes wrong as things will go wrong right i mean murphy's law what can go wrong will go wrong at some point that is really the core of what we're trying to get at when we talk to sponsors. Yeah, those are great questions. What do you think the, I guess, main value proposition that the club has? Like, what is the club bringing to a potential member? And 
end. What are they going to get out of it? A couple of things. First, they can invest in private equity, real estate syndications with five grand instead of 50 or 100 or 250 or whatever. So that's a really simple one. Second, one of our core values is accessibility and inclusiveness to everybody, not just accredited investors. So every single deal that we put forth or propose in our club allows non-accredited investors. We don't feature any deals that are accredited only. We want to keep this club accessible to every single member, regardless of their net worth. And that is one of the challenges of being a middle-class investor as an LP, trying to find good, reputable sponsors who allow non-accredited investors because they can't advertise to you. That's, that's part of the rules, the SEC regulations. If you have a 506B offering that allows non-accredited investors, you are not allowed to publicly advertise it or publicly market it. It's hard for the average person to find these sponsors, find these deals when they're not allowed to be marketed. Those are two things. Deal flow is another one. Every month, we are vetting different deals. We're bringing deals in front of our club. And that community aspect, you know, you asked how we vet sponsors, but ultimately, our club is vetting these deals and vetting these sponsors, not just us. Denny and I are just establishing the initial relationship with the sponsors to tick that legal requirement. Because again, five or six B deals that allow non-accredited investors, you have to have a pre-existing relationship with the sponsor. So Denny and I are going out, we're doing that. We're networking with dozens and hundreds of sponsors in order to then have that deal flow in our club, bring these sponsors in front of our club members who they probably never would have heard of otherwise. But we put them in front of our club and then we grill them together in a big Q&A and vet the deals as a club. Is it just real estate investments? No, but it's mostly real estate investments. Our club is first and foremost a passive real estate investing club. That being said, we have done some other stuff. We invested in a deal that was it was an industrial business. They manufacture steel tanks for other industrial businesses. And when we invested in that business, it also came with the land. There was a real estate component to it. But the main value was actually this cash flowing industrial business. So that's one example. We've also invested in a short term note that was not actually secured by real estate, but the bulk of the businesses that were guaranteeing this note were real estate investing related businesses. Technically, no, we don't only invest in real estate specifically, but that is the broader purpose of our club is a passive real estate investing club. Do you get any pushback from syndicators on kind of the community aspect of like the LLC investing with them? One of the reasons a lot of syndicators raise their minimums is like, it's a lot easier to manage less people. That's one of the benefits for the actual like sponsor of like raising the minimums is, okay, I get less people in the deal, you know, essentially less people to talk with. I'm assuming you guys probably are the main contact for the sponsor and then field all the questions? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So we are the main contact for the sponsor. I mean, the sponsor ends up having our LLC, our joint LLC as the one LP in their deal. So in communications, they're really dealing with Denny and me with the exception of we bring every sponsor in front of our club for a direct Q&A when we're vetting a deal. You know, it's not like they have to have separate meetings with 50 people. I mean, they have one video call just like they would have otherwise. If they choose to share their email address, which they usually do, 
in that call, then they might field a few questions, direct questions from our members after that call. But that purpose of that one call is for them to be available directly to our members. It doesn't cost them any extra time to speak with 50 of us instead of having a video call with one investor. It's the same amount of time on the phone. They're just taking questions from 50 people instead of from one. I guess there's a couple like with that LLC specifically, then you and Denny would be the manager of the LLC or I guess the managing members. Yeah. One of us will get listed as the managing member of the LLC just for legal purposes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we have any more ownership in the LLC. I mean, the ownership of each LLC is completely determined by the amount of money that each person invests. I personally invest in really all of these deals. I don't have any larger ownership than anyone else would just because I'm a managing member. Because again, otherwise we'd be selling securities. My ownership percentage, just like everyone else's, is based on the money that I put in to that deal. And then I guess getting the taxes done, accounting, Yeah. So that is something that we didn't fully appreciate the complexity of that (laughs) and the challenges (laughs) of that when we launched this club. We're at a point where we are able to go out and negotiate a bulk discount basically with a CPA to do these. We interviewed some CPAs that have direct experience with real estate syndications. They understand how they work. They understand all the accounting behind them. Because our initial CPA that we'd been using for years, we kept asking them about this. We'd be in a meeting with two of them and they kept like debating. We'd ask them a simple question and the two of them would sit there and debate it. And we're like, this is not instilling confidence. Like you guys don't know. You don't know the answer to these questions. We had to go out and find someone else who's very familiar with real estate syndications. And you know, fortunately, the accounting for any one of these LLCs is pretty simple. The LLC gets a K-1 at the end of the year from the sponsor. And then that K-1 basically needs to be carved up and spit out different individual K-1s to each member of the LLC. You know, Taking into account quirks like any interest that our bank account may have earned and the cost of the tax prep. But it's pretty simple for each one. So we negotiated a deal for 250 bucks per LLC per year for accounting. We're keeping the administrative costs of each LLC very, very low. That's phenomenal. And I mean, you have 2,000 that you're a member of? Oh, not 2,000 syndications. If you're talking about my bio where I say that I have a fractional interest in 2,000 units, that's units across... I'm a member in, I don't know, 15 or 20 syndications, which collectively constitutes around 2,000 units, 2,000 some units. But no, no, we have not invested in (laughs) 2,000 syndications. Does each partner get like... I'm assuming you get like a quarterly report or a report from the syndication. Do you just pass that information on to everyone or do you like, I mean, and let them do the ratio split or let them come up with the idea of how it's doing or are you like rebranded it or I don't know, I guess kind of, how does that information flow? Yeah. So when we get monthly or quarterly updates from the sponsor, we literally just hit forward in our inbox and just you forward get, it to you get like email uh, groups and you're like forward on. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's that simple. As far as distributions and the financial side of it, if we get monthly or quarterly distributions every quarter, we just send out each person's proportional yeah. amount of that. That too is really simple. Cool. Do you use the Spark Rental software that you guys developed and put host those properties and upload those property owners? 
that's for active property management. And fortunately, we are not doing any active property management with these syndication deals, which is the point. <laughs> we don't have to actively be involved in any of that stuff anymore. So no, we don't. It would be nice for reinforcing our brand. Yeah, cool. What else should we know about the club? Oh, man. Come and join a meeting. We have a full refund policy with no questions asked. So one of the challenges with running this club and trying to market this club is that just most people have never heard of what we're doing. Most people have never even heard of real estate syndications in the first place. Uh, and if they have, they have a million questions about them. They get intimidated by them. We just tell people, come show up, see how a meeting goes. You don't have to say anything if you don't want to say anything. Just come check it out. And if you decide afterwards that it's not for you, then send me a one-sentence email asking for a refund and we'll refund you. No hard feelings, no questions asked. But I think you really need to participate you need to join or attend one of these meetings just to get a sense for how it all works. And we'd encourage you to grill a sponsor, <laughs> ask them a bunch of questions and see how it works. But yeah, come have firsthand experience and kick the tires. If it's not for you, that's fine. Awesome. I think it's probably about that time we head on to our last four questions. I will start it off. So our first of the four is, What's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? Oh, man. I would say go get expert help. Whatever it is that you're trying to do, don't try to go it alone. Don't try to be this maverick. When I was in my 20s, and I still find myself falling into this trap today, entrepreneurial people, they think that they can do everything on their own. The whole adage of, oh, you know, you jump off the cliff and you build the parachute on the way down and you just figure it out, which is all great and it's all true. But you also need help building that parachute. And that's what no one tells you in the beginning. Go out, get mentors, get coaches, find senior partners, whatever it is, get expert help. If it's in your personal life, get a therapist or a counselor or whatever. In your investments, join an investment club or find a mentor or a coach or a program or something. Same goes for your career. Whatever it is, get expert help. And don't think that you can just do everything on your own because then you're going to make all the expensive mistakes and you have to learn every lesson the hard way instead of learning it the easy way from someone else's mistakes. I love yeah. it. It's definitely like the idea of like the no need to recreate the wheel. Like somebody else has done it. Yeah, but exactly. how do you pick the right person to, if you're 25, you don't know anything. <laughs> One argument that I've heard over the years that I think there's some truth to is that you don't need to find this one like Yoda, you don't need to find like the one perfect mentor that's going to be your everything and everyone to you. Go find like mini mentors or micro mentors or whatever you want to call it. Someone who for one thing is in a one very specific area in your life that you're looking to improve, but also it's hard to ask someone to like commit to being available to you all the time or, or to like mentoring you, but you can get five minutes here from someone, a half hour there from someone, a cup of coffee. Maybe you only see them once a year or whatever it is, but don't be afraid to take advice wherever you can get it. And from people who maybe you're not forming a permanent relationship with necessarily or committing to that, go out and get advice from a lot of different people. And yeah, it doesn't have to be a long-term commitment right off the bat. Okay. Our next question. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? My first entrepreneurial endeavor was making fake IDs out of my dorm room when I was freshman in college. But <laughs> nowadays, that's no longer considered funny. This is pre 9 11. So <laughs> back then, it was not that big of a deal. You know, statute of limitations is run out on that one. So you can talk about it now. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I hope uh, they were you know, but yeah, so nowadays that's like a big scary thing. In 1999, it didn't have the same weight that people think of it now. When I worked for the hard money lender, I worked entirely on commission. That was an entrepreneurial endeavor where you're taking a bit of a risk with that, but it paid off and it ended up, I mean, I actually really enjoyed that job, that gig while it lasted. And I learned a lot. Yeah. It's the eat what you kill. You're going to live and die by the amount of work and performance. So absolutely, what was it that made you feel okay that you could enter yourself into that type of agreement? Because many, 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 many people would not feel secure with that. Yeah. So it helped that the two guys that I was working with, the hard money lenders, they, they guaranteed that I would make a certain amount of money over the course of the first year, basically. And it was not a huge I think it came out to like 24 grand total in the year. But I was so young and living on so such a small budget that it didn't matter. And they knew that I was going to earn more than that. So it didn't cost them anything to guarantee that. You know, they'd been in the industry long enough to know that I was going to do better than that. But that gave me the psychological reassurance that I needed to agree to do it. Safety net. Cool. Sweet. So next question is, how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? From those early days of working for the hard money lender and just learning the real estate investing industry from the angle of the financing side, it's a different approach to it than most real estate investors get. And that was valuable in its own ways to see how do lenders evaluate deals? How do they evaluate properties? How do they evaluate borrowers? A lot of new real estate investors, they really worry about the financing piece of it. I never had to worry about that. I knew that even if my lender wasn't going to lend me money, and they would always lend me money, of course, I knew how to approach other lenders and what they were looking for in a deal. So that was never an intimidating component of the process for me. But then going out and buying all those properties and making all those mistakes firsthand, I learned the hard way how to forecast cash flow on a deal because my idiot 23-year-old self is still thinking that it's the rent minus the mortgage. And then I had to learn, no, it's actually, you have to take into account those irregular expenses like vacancy rate and repairs and maintenance and all that stuff that novice investors all too often forget. When you work with contractors, you're probably going to end up paying 20 to 50% more than what they initially quoted you for a deal, unless you've really established a strong trust and rapport with one contractor. It's all those sorts of things that you just have to kind of live it. Or better yet, like we talked about a minute ago, partner with someone else or get coaching or mentorship from someone else who can walk you through those lessons so you don't have to make them or learn them the hard way. Great lessons. What you said really makes sense about mitigating risk. That's what a lot of the club focuses on, or maybe that's kind of your focus within the club is like, mitigating all the risk within the potential investments and having that background like certainly helps. Yeah. I mean, you can never take all the risk out of an investment. Every investment comes with risk, but the more experience that you have and the more people that you have looking at a deal, the more eyes you have on a deal, which is part of what we're going for with this club, you'll be able to spot the risk more accurately over time. You'll be able to better identify which deals come with outsized risk and which deals actually have really good risk-adjusted returns, where the deal doesn't have that much risk, but there's a pretty strong upside potential in it. I'll give you one really quick example. We reviewed a deal a few months ago. It was a portfolio of two 
what they call select service hotels, which means just like no frills, corporate hotels. They were outside of Fort Knox in Tennessee. So it's all government contractors coming through there. Basically, there's very little risk that Fort Knox is going to disappear or that demand for these hotels is going to disappear. Very consistent cash flow. And they are, we're assuming existing fixed low interest debt that had another nine plus years remaining on it. There was very little risk in that deal from multiple angles. One example of how when you get more experience and you get some more people looking at these deals, you start to be able to pick out ones that have better risk-adjusted returns as opposed to ones that have a lot more risk that isn't necessarily instantly obvious from the pitch deck. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Now, our final question. What was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? My biggest mistake, going out and going on a buying spree of rental properties when I was in my mid-20s without taking the time to learn from mistakes along the way. At one point, I bought eight properties in a single year. I didn't have time to make the mistakes yet before I was buying the next property or to see the mistakes that I was making. So I ended up just compounding all those mistakes on top of one another. It ended up being quite costly for me when 2008 came along. When you are trying new things and new investments, just take a measured approach and leave yourself some time to observe the mistakes and learn from them before just plowing more money in and more money in. I'll give you another example that is relevant to the way that we invest currently. There's a policy that we have implemented in our club that we don't want to invest with the same sponsor within 12 months of the first investment that we made with them. We want to give each sponsor a year of us having money with them to see what do they communicate? How do they handle unexpected hiccups? All of these sorts of things that are not obvious from the outside. We want to give a chance to make some of those mistakes or for us to learn from each sponsor and how they approach their deals before we go and we start investing more money with the same sponsor. That makes a lot of sense. What you've learned also ties into one of the most important things about the club is being able to mitigate risk and understand risk. The risk of ruin, kind of a financial markets term, but also applies in real estate. Like generally, you don't want a very high possibility of risk of ruin. Right. And part of our mission too is diversification. And that comes back to having smaller amounts invested across a lot more deals. Because let's say you have $60,000 to invest within a year in passive real estate. You could invest in one deal if you're investing by yourself in one single deal. And if that deal goes wrong, you're in trouble. And you're going to be sitting there and staying awake at night and gnawing on your fingernails, worrying about how that one deal is doing. Or you could invest five grand across 12 different deals. And at that point, it just becomes numbers on a page. right? It becomes the average across how all those different deals are doing. And inevitably, it ends up looking like a bell curve where some of those deals are not going to do very well, right? They're going to underperform. Some of them are going to hit out of the park and do great. And most of them will be somewhere in the middle of that bell curve. And that's okay. That reduces risk when you're not overexposed to any one property, any one market, any one sponsor, any one industry or property type. I mean, the way that I approach my investing now for both stocks, real estate, everything is just diversification across the board. And my stocks, all in index funds in regions across the world and 
market caps across the world in different sectors. And same thing in real estate. It's different property types across the country, different markets, different cities, different sponsors. Some of them aren't going to do well. That's just part of investing. Some of them are going to do great. But the more you spread out that risk, like you said, you reduce that risk of ruin. No one rotten hole is going to sink the entire bear. Uh, diversification. That could be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, it has really been a pleasure to have you on. And I look forward to jumping in on, is it Spark Club or is it Spark Rental still? Or what's Spark, the name of the club? Yeah. So Spark Rental is the name of our company. And then our co-investing club is the club that people can join. And we hope to have you guys join and you know, we hope to see you on the next meeting. To, to grill a sponsor. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's fun. I mean, if any of our listeners want to get a hold of you or learn more about the club, where do they go? Sure. Well, you can, of course, go to sparkrental.com. You'll see our co-investing club front and center there. You can also reach me personally at brian at sparkrental.com, or you can email support at sparkrental.com. We're a very small business, a mom and pop company. You'll reach me. <laughs> and of course, you can reach us on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, etc. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming out today and being on our show. We appreciate it. Yeah, this is fun stuff. AJ, Chris, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. I'll hit you up if I'm in Peru. Yeah, please do. Yeah, we'll get some some ceviche and a pisco sour together. Let's go. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.